Welcome to Breitbart News Daily. Thanks for being here. Let's play the opening segment for you of our show. We did a hodgepodge. We don't do this a lot, but sometimes we do. A bunch of different stories. None of them did, you know, require huge, full, deep analysis, but we just want to give them all to you so you're up, up on and off. Uh, at this time, when we did this at 5 a.m. Central Time, the missing F-35 was not a story yet. I would have put that in here, clearly. I would have put the missing F-35, $80 million aircraft that we'd like, whoops. Hey, if you, they, they put a missing persons alert out for an F-35. Hey, if you, uh, if you guys have, uh, just, you know, if you're driving to work today and you happen to come across an F-35 that crash landed near Charleston, if you could give us a ring, you know, 1-800-HOUR-BAD, give us a ring-a-ding and uh, let us know. We'll go and we'll, uh, we'll pick it up. What in the world? I almost don't even think that's a true story. <laughs> I can't, that can't be. Can it? They, they, they can't find it? But that story did not break when we had our opening hodgepodge. Alas, all the others are still relevant for right now. start off with a bunch of random stories all right i just got like a bunch here i don't know what to do with them so we'll just do them all here to start the week in no particular order back in 2020 in charlottesville virginia there was a uh, uva student who said some horrific vile racist Really just dehumanizing, to say the least, stuff to Black Lives Matter protesters. A group of Black Lives Matter protesters, actually. And one of the, a fellow UVA student, one of these Black Lives Matter activists, overheard what this person said. And rightfully went on to social media and destroyed her life. So, and the school, of course, always sides with the activists. They went after the student as well. Now, what did the student say? What did the white girl say? The white student said, these Black Lives Matter activists, and you could just, just imagine the, just the, the, the venom pouring from her mouth, dripping from her lips, shooting from her eyes when she said this. She said, these Black Lives Matter activists will make good speed bumps. Because they were in the street, right? They're marching in the street. She's in her car. Right. They're going to make good speed bumps. Let me, let me at them. That kind of thing. Oh, can you believe it? So this Black Lives Matter activist heard this, went to social media, was all over it. Email these UVA deans now to demand that Morgan face consequences for her actions and that UVA stop graduating racist. Now, to be clear, this white person didn't used the Black Lives Matter activists as speed bumps. I'll be clear about that. So, so they say Morgan needs to face consequences for her actions. There were, there were no actions. But whatever. UVA sent out official statements strongly condemning 
any threat directed at these activists. Now, we'll make a long story short here. Uh, she never said that. Black Lives Matter activists were marching in the street, blocking the street. She comes up to the street in her car, and there was a dump truck driver that was in front of her. And she said to the dump truck driver, it's a good thing you're here because otherwise, meaning like it's a good thing you're stopping the traffic because otherwise these people would have been speed bumps. She claims she said it as a, as a point of gratitude. Like, oh, shoo, I would have just, I would have gone through the green light here and I would have, I would have hit all these people. She's actually someone in solidarity with the movement. But this was back in 2020 when everyone almost decided to go insane and to interpret everything in the worst possible way imaginable. It's like what they did with Trump for the previous four years. Just every single thing Trump did, you have to imagine in the worst light you could possibly conceive of and then respond like that. You have to respond as if he said that, meaning it that way. So this Black Lives Matter activist heard what she wanted to hear, ran with it, and she had every financial incentive to do so as well. In 2016, she uh, became this activist because she wrote this uh, whole thing about removing a Robert E. Lee statue. She was named Teen Vogue's 21 Under 21. She spoke alongside Bernie Sanders. She was profiled in the New York Times and the New Yorker. This was all before this moment. So she was famous for being an activist. But more than being an activist, she was famous for being an oppressed activist. So everything overheard had to be interpreted through the lens of oppression, even when later she admitted that she might have misheard what this other student said, but whatevs. So she's back in the news today because Dove Soap made her one of their new cover girls. The, the, the activist, not, not the innocent girl. <laughs> of course not. Her life's still ruined. The activist who made false claims to destroy a woman's life. She's now the face and body of Dove Soap. Now you think, wow, that's interesting. Next time I watch, I see a Dove commercial or a Dove advertisement, I wonder who it's going to be. Well, you can tell because Ziana Bryant is a black fat liberation specialist different way fat liberation looks like fully embracing those differences and having those conversations instead of shying away from them to learn more about fat liberation and the campaign for size freedom that dove is supporting visit dove.com forward slash size freedom tap in join the campaign support the campaign this is important and we should all be talking about it size freedom <laughs> size freedom Size freedom. Do you remember when these uh, the politically correct terms came around? And it was kind of funny. Like, um, instead of midget, it was vertically challenged. Remember? A couple funny ones. I, know. Uh, I don't think anyone came up with size freedom. That's pretty great. So, obviously, I had to go to the website. Uh, Dove.com slash size freedom. Everyone deserves care love and respect at every size. Yet body discrimination is legal in 48 states. So we've joined forces with the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance and Fat Legal 
advocacy rights and education projects, flare to strengthen legal protection against body size discrimination. <laughs> Jeez. All right, so uh, enough of that story. But this is a nice capper to a clip we played last week. They got a ton of feedback of Lionel Shriver. It's a longer clip. Let me just play a couple seconds of it. Is who's more oppressed? Who has it the hardest? It's not about. Sorry, I had it on 2X. Becoming powerful, it is about, uh, it's about seeing your powerlessness as your power. And that kind of inversion weirdly means that people who regard themselves as oppressed have no reason to get unoppressed, that is to solve their problem, because their problem is their, their ticket. I would say their problem is their power. So this, this she's not a student anymore. This young woman's power or, or oppression is her power. And she's wielding it for modeling contracts. <laughs> That's how inverted it all is. Okay. Uh, this is, let's go to Michigan now. This was a real red pill moment for me. Is that the right color pill? I never understood the color of the pills. Whatever. This is an eye-opening moment for me. Do you remember the militia group? This was also in 2020. This is at the height of COVID. And there was a militia group that was plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, to protest her tyrannical lockdown, COVID lockdown policies. And when the story first came out, I believed it. Gosh, as, this is amazing. As cynical as I am about everything, I, I go with things. Like first glance, my, still my knee jerk is like the Ken Paxton thing. I was like, oh, well, yeah, maybe. And then this. Now, to be fair, this was early on. This is a couple years ago. But Gretchen Whitmer kidnapped plot. I was like, well, yeah, I could see it. I could see how people could do such a thing. That makes sense. Turns out it was a massive FBI entrapment sting thing. Here's MSNBC of all places with the update. 23 past the hour, we are following breaking news. A verdict has just been reached in the trial of the three men charged in the plot to kidnap Michigan's Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Joining us now, NBC's Antonia Hilton. So, Antonia, good morning. What's the verdict? Good morning, Jose. Well, these three men who were accused of being part of this 2020 plot to kidnap the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer, have all been acquitted on all counts. Now, these three men were part of this militia group, the Wolverine Watchmen, and they were accused by the government of being part of this plot, of taking part in drills and surveillance of uh, Gretchen Whitmer's properties. And what they have testified, two of the three testified, saying that they took part in these drills but did not know the plot until the very very end. And they weren't some of the central players here. Some of those folks have already been convicted. They are facing up to and about 20 years in prison. But these three men, two of whom are brothers, are off on all charges. And you remember, you okay. know, so it was entrapment. <laughs> it was an entrapment plan by the FBI. Half of the people involved were FBI agents or assets. Half of them. I believe there were 16 in total. Eight of them were, <laughs> were FBI agents. Crazy. So notice they never said that, and, they, and there's more to the clip, but they, they don't talk about that in this MSNBC clip. They don't talk about the FBI agents. And I was reading an article in NPR about uh, this and the other ones who are in prison now. Like some, some people pled guilty up front, 
and that maybe wasn't the best decision. Now looking back on it, they maybe should have fought. But uh, here's the judge. Uh, oh, so oh, the, uh, the the government wanted life in prison for these guys. No, no, no. Excuse me. There's a different guy. Excuse me. I back it up. My fault. Different guy. A different guy. They wanted life in prison, and the judge is like, no, no, no. Sixteen years. Sixteen years is plenty. Sixteen years. But check out this line. This is NPR. Whitmer wasn't physically harmed. The FBI, which had secretly embedded in the group, broke things up by fall. No, 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 no. The FBI did not break it up. The FBI created it. The It wasn't, oh, good thing the FBI was, somehow they were able to infiltrate in there and they broke it up from the inside. Thank you. FBI for saving the day. No, no, no. The FBI made it happen. They created it. They amped it. They recruited for it. This is classic entrapment. <laughs> the media says, oh, wow, good thing they were there. No, if they weren't there, it would never would have happened. All right, let's go to New York City now. This is uh, AOC. Haven't heard from her in a while. Speaking in Manhattan about illegal immigrants. And yes, I am only playing one clip here. I'll just play a couple seconds of it. Momentarily. Here we go. With that? Yeah, and ultimately I think that there are three points of consensus here that are very important in getting a solution to this issue. The first is that there is there is consensus here across geography and states on increased federal resources to cities and municipalities dealing with this issue. The second is to allow for work authorizations so that the folks in here can get to work and start supporting themselves as soon as possible. They are prevented from getting jobs. They are prevented from employment. And that is part of the strain on our public system. Okay. So that she's at a press conference in New York City getting screamed at in the conservative hotbed known as downtown Manhattan. People screaming, close the border, close the border. She's talking about getting illegal immigrants jobs. <laughs> people around her screaming, close the border. So I wanted to play that clip also because it's just to show you the, the plan here. And we've talked about this in great detail. I'll go quick. The work permits. The work permits is a step towards getting these illegal immigrants closer to well, voting is the ultimate goal. So the left says, oh, here's all these immigrants. They need to be citizens. And people were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They're illegal immigrants. They're not citizens. Oh, okay, fine. But I mean, they've been working here for five years, contributing to society and raising their families and paying taxes. And they've been living in the shadows. At least we need to let them vote. And you already see that on a, a very local level. Uh, in, I know in San Francisco, and I'm sure there's other places too, but in San Francisco, uh, illegal immigrants are allowed to vote in the school board elections. Again, that's just foot in the door. Well, if they can vote in school board elections, they should also be able to vote for mayor. And if they can vote for mayor, then they should be able to vote for Congress. If they vote for Congress, they should be able to vote. That's how that goes. So that's the point of that is to just got to get them here, get them working, and then get them voting. 
Now, you would think, you would think that the argument from the Democrats, the party of the working class, you'd think the argument of, hey, everyone, we just need to make it legal for them to take all of your jobs wouldn't be a winning argument. You'd think people of Queens, who I represent, I know this looks bad. But if if they just take your jobs, then they will be better off. And then you won't have to pay their welfare anymore. Now, you'll be on welfare. You'll be on welfare because you won't have a job anymore. But think of the look at the bright side. You won't have to pay their welfare. They'll be paying your welfare. People of Queens, median household income $62,000. We just need to make it legal for these people to take your job. Not not, not all your jobs. Not all your jobs. Just like, I don't know, like 20,000 of them or something. Bill Malugan said the August border numbers are the highest of the year, despite the White House claiming that they have, quote, stopped the flow. All right, next topic. Spitballing here. We're machine gunning on this Monday morning. Marty Macquarie, if that's how you pronounce his last name, St. John's Medical School, says that the new vaccine studies for the FDA-approved vaccines. Are you going to get these vaccines? Is anyone, who is going to get these vaccines? By the way, in Australia, you are not recommended to get the vaccine unless you're 75 or older. Only 75 or older. I think in some European countries, it's illegal to get the vaccine if you're under 30. They won't even let you get the vaccine. And in America, it's recommended for six months or older. Six months. Could you imagine? Who who in their right mind? I, I can understand. I can see someone getting it. Like I can't, like I get, I would I've never, I haven't, but I, but I could see someone getting it. I could not see someone putting, injecting their six month old with it. That, I, I, that's unfathomable to me. So we're, we in America, six months old, recommended. Australia, 75 or older are the only people. Those are different groups of people. Anyway, the new Pfizer vaccine, their rigorous studies were based off of 10 mice. Now, you can give me all the the stuff you want about how the, the DNA of mice and humans are blah, blah, blah. No human data whatsoever. Moderna's new vaccine was tested on 50 people, tracked for two weeks, And one of the 50, 50, not 50,000, 50 people, and one of them had an adverse event requiring medical attention. The the technical term is medically attended adverse event that Moderna won't tell you what it was. That's all. They just categorized it as medically attended adverse event. I don't know. Was the person dizzy? Did the person uh, grow a a third ear? Did the person have a stroke and die? I don't know. 
But don't worry, if there are any theoretical benefits of this vaccine, it will last for three months. And then you're back to nothing. So go for it. Give it a go. Let's inject things in your body. See what happens. Uh, next story, Shane Gillis is a comedian. His new special is a joke about Joe Biden. He says, my favorite thing about Biden is anytime Biden finishes a speech, he transforms into a Roomba. He just doesn't know. He just starts going this way and then uh, turn around, back, around, go this way. For, uh, oh, oh. I thought that was a funny line that now you can't unsee. You just, you just watch him. Oh, finish up your speech. I got to watch it. I got Come on. Let, oh, Audie, he's about to finish. And uh, God bless America. Turns into a Roomba. Ooh, oh, this way. No. Thought that was a good line. All right, last one. Uh, L.A. County Sheriff Deputy Saturday ambushed, shot in the head while he was sitting in his patrol car. Sitting in his patrol car, someone comes up from behind, shoots him in the head. 30 years old, third generation L.A. Sheriff, third generation. His dad and his grandfather worked for the L.A. Sheriff's Department. The, and and four days prior to this, he engaged to he proposed to his girlfriend. How about that? They don't know. They have no leads at all. No clue. They got nothing. Maybe the murderer will be stupid enough to post a video of it online. This happens with shocking frequency. I saw a video a couple of days ago and there was no context to it. I didn't know what, who, where, when, anything. But there are these two young people driving a car in Vegas and they rammed into the side of another car. And I didn't know the context. I didn't, like, it just started right with the ramming and uh, like a road ramp. I don't know what, I don't know, like what is this video that even popped up on my feed? I don't even know what's going on. And then they kept driving. This is in Vegas. And they, they saw an innocent older gentleman riding his bicycle, pedaling along on the side of the road. And one of the, the passengers, someone, one of the guys in the car said, hey, let's hit his blank. And the driver accelerated and turned the car off the road, right on, onto the bike lane on the side and hit him from behind. And the man goes flying over the hood of the car and they're cracking up about it. They're laughing and then they drive off. And I was like, well, that's horrific. Like what, 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 what in the world am I just watching? Like that, like how, and also how callous this constant bombardment of stuff like this makes you. You just watch it. You're like, what? And like that would have been not long ago if you saw something like that. That would have shocked. That would have, that would have been the most shocking, horrific thing that anyone would have ever seen in their life. Can you imagine going to someone in 1950? I mean, maybe that was post-war. So people, short of war, that would have been the most shocking. So you go to someone who's never seen war in 1950. There's like someone like going on with their day. Like they're living their life. They're living their random day. And you just go up and show them a video of that. They'd be like, what are you doing? Why? And that's Twitter. That's just Twitter. We're just living our life. And then boom, here's one of the most horrific things imaginable. As this person purposefully just murdering someone with their car. So it turns out it just happened. The driver is 17. The man was murdered, and 
He's a former police officer from California, retired in Las Vegas, and indeed there was no reason for it whatsoever. So those last two stories, what do you do with that level of evil? What do you do with that? Right? We're, oh, we're going to go shoot this uh, sheriff's deputy in the back of the head and just walk away. Uh, just, let's, just, let's just run over this guy. Let's see what happens. Let's, 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 let's accelerate into him from behind. Right? What are we doing? So what do you do? You put those people in jail forever. You put them all in jail because they are completely callous to human life. They, they are, are from this point forward, the rest of their life, like, sorry, stinks to be them. You're, you're never going to participate in civilization. You can't, you cannot do this. You're incapable. You'll never be reformed. You'll never be rehabilitated. Even if you are, I don't even care anymore. Like you're done. If you want to find Jesus and become a Christian and, and find uh, spiritual eternal redemption, from behind bars, great. I'll, I'll, I'll be a part of the ministry to help you do that. You're never allowed out of this building ever again. You'll never see the light of day. You'll never be free. You'll never have a proper family life. You'll never be a part of anything ever with society. You're done. That's it. One shot, gone. That person, those people need to go to prison forever. I don't know why we're scared of that. We have this like, oh, well, he's 17. We'll let him out when he turns 18. What? No, never again. Done. Oh, you're going to leave him in jail till he's till he's 70 years old? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No question. Oh, come on. Oh, oh. 1866 patreon 866-95-PATREON. A little hodgepodge for you to start off the day. Um, we never got to talk about this guy. So there is a professor at Florida State who's, who's, who provided a lot of the intellectual backing foundation for some of Black Lives Matter's claims. And he was fired for making it all up. Do you know how hard it is to get fired from a university? You'd have to make up 20 years worth of, worth of stuff in order to get fired. And indeed, that's what he did. We'll tell you that story next. Mike Slater, Breitbart News Daily. Spread the word. Breitbart News Daily. I'm a big fan of Larry Elder. Have been for a long time. He's running for president. I think he got the shaft not being allowed on the first debate stage. He's been a voice for conservative principles for 30 years, 30 plus years. He should have been up on the debate stage. Uh, even if he didn't, he barely missed the qualifications, whatever. Let him on. Don't make a big stink about, oh, no, we can't have you. We got to have Doug Burgum, but we can't have you. So that's a real shame. But I want to try to get him on the, the next debate stage. Uh, if nothing else, to talk about one of the main thing he talked about here. Larry Elder, how are you, sir? I am well, Mike. You know, regarding the last debate stage, I met all of their criteria, 40,000 individual donors. I had to submit three polls where I was at at least 1% or better. I did that. Last minute, Ronna McDaniel, the uh, GOP chairwoman, and Dave Bossy, the debate star, call me and tell me, you can't use one of the polls you submitted. I said, why? And they said, well, the Rasmussen poll is, quote, affiliated with the Trump campaign, close quote. I said, well, assuming that's true, why is that my problem? And they said, any poll affiliated with any candidate cannot be used by any other candidate. Rasmussen then puts out a statement, Mike, and says, Trump is not affiliated with our poll. There's no reason why Elder can't use us. So then I submitted a fourth poll showing me at 1% or better, and they said I submitted it too late. And it's true. I submitted it past the deadline because I didn't know I needed to submit another one. But that polling had 
concluded before the deadline. So there was enough wiggle room. They could have put me up there had they wanted to. Not only, Mike, was I not allowed on the debate stage, they put up a sign at the door and said, told security, don't let Elder or his campaign staff in the building if they try to get in. So now I'm on the RNC terror watch list. So I filed <laughs> a complaint with the Federal Election Commission uh, claiming that by failing to uh, apply the debate criteria fairly to Elder, what they really did is to give an in-kind contribution to the eight people who made it. And my lawyer is a former chair of the FEC, and we threatened we're going to file a complaint if by 2 o'clock on the debate day they can change their mind. They didn't, so now we filed that complaint. But in the meantime, my goal, of course, is to make sure that I meet the criteria for the next debate, which is here in California on the 27th. I've got to get 3% in three different polls. And to that end, we launched a a massive media buy about uh, uh, 72 hours ago to get my numbers up. And I'm urging people to go to LarryElder.com. Throw something in the tip jar. Get me up there on that uh, on the next debate stage. So uh, you're in California. It's 5 o'clock. You're pretty, you sound pretty up and at him for 5 a.m., Larry. Hey, hey, Mike, Mike when, when, when Mike Slater says oh, elder, jump, elder says how high and does not come down until Mike Slater tells me to. That's <laughs> and how early? Work. How early do I have to get up? I appreciate that, Mr. Elder. Um, so I mean, let me, one last thing about the past, and then we'll get to the future. Uh, I'm here on Newsweek, esteemed Newsweek. Larry Elder admitted he was 2,000 unique donors shy of the 40,000 needed to qualify. That is flat out untrue. I met the 40,000 individual donors. In order to make the next debate, I have to have 50,000 individual donors. I'm going to meet that without any problem. That is flat out untrue. Not only is it untrue, after this happened, the RNC put out a letter to the members of the RNC and said, Elder only qualified in one poll at 1%. That is, again, flat out not true. We sent a letter to all the members of the RNC attaching all the polls showing me uh, at 3% or better, and there were four of them, and now all of a sudden the RNC said I only qualified for one. I have no idea, Mike, honestly, why they're doing this, other than yeah. I feel I've given the RNC heartburn. I've been talking about issues like the epidemic of fatherlessness, the need for an amendment to the Constitution to set spending to a fixed percentage of the GDP. Otherwise, government gets bigger whether Republicans are in charge or Democrats in charge. I've been criticizing the uh, RNC for not refuting more strongly the lie that America remains systemically racist, a lie of getting people killed because cops are pulling back all over the country, and there are literally in the last few years thousands of excess casualties, including dead people who otherwise wouldn't be dead if the police were doing their normal practice policing. Uh, And we have to really have school choice. I know the RNC is in favor of that, but I don't think my people realize how bad it is, K-12 urban education, where, for example, in Baltimore, there were 13 public high schools, I kid you not, where 0% of the kids can do math at grade level. So these are the kinds of things that I've been saying, and I think I give them heartburn. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why. How many, how many years have you been in this game? How many decades have you been in the game, Larry Elder? I've been I've been talking about reading about these kinds of things for over 30 years, almost 40 yeah. years. I've written about 1,200 newspaper columns. Uh, best-selling author, been on radio and TV for almost uh, 30 years, talking about all these kinds of things. Yeah. And again, yeah. why it is I'm being treated this way is beyond me. Yeah, like so if I were Al Sharpton, I'd play the race card. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 30 plus years of of tried yep. and true, on point, unblemished conservative record you would think even if you were 2,000 donors shy and one maybe sort of pull away even if that were true you would think of course you would let Larry Elder on the debate stage just to show off to the American people and to the Democrats and to the media 
uh, this is our bet. This, th- these are our guys. These are our, these are our top dogs. This is who we got. And you'd think they'd be proud right. to have a Larry Elder up on stage talking about the things that you talk about and have talked about for 30 plus well, well, years. Well, plus, plus, plus like the issues I'm pushing, and I know it, it's, it's having a beneficial effect. Look, I'm an America first mega guy. I know we have an America first mega guy in the race. His name is Donald Trump, and the odds are he's likely to get the nomination. And that, I'm, I'm fine with that. I campaigned with him and for him in 2016. I supported him in 2020, and we'll do so again uh, in 2024, and we'll campaign with him if they have to do so. But I'm talking about some things that even Trump isn't talking about and ought to. Uh, number one, as I said earlier, the epidemic of fatherlessness. Mike, I can tell it's having an effect because just a few days ago, uh, Nick Kristoff, one of the, the New York Times big long-time opinion columnists, wrote a long column about fatherlessness, chastised the left for ignoring the issue, and said it is counterproductive for the left not to start talking about this. There's no way he would have written that had I not, had I not been talking about this. And at the debate where I wasn't present, Vivek Ramaswamy even said, uh, something about, quote, the epidemic of fatherlessness, close quote. Now, I've been on the same stage with Vivek many times in Iowa and New Hampshire. I've heard his stump speech over and over and over again, Mike. He has never once mentioned it, but he did mention it in Milwaukee. And finally, people are talking about this. This is a 10,000-pound elephant in the room uh, that the left doesn't talk about because they created it with, the, with their war on poverty launched in the mid-'60s. And since then, we've incentivized women to marry the government and incentivize men to abandon the financial and moral responsibility. It is particularly acute in the black community where 70% of black kids now enter the world without a father in the home married to the mother, up from 25% back in 1965. Now, our side doesn't talk about it for fear that we'll be called systemically racist, or if you're black, you'll be called, as I was called by the L.A. Times, the black face of white supremacy. But it has to be addressed. And I can tell that my being in this race has now made this issue one that people are talking about far more than they would have if I had not been in the yeah. race. And that's and why— if, if that's all I achieved— Yes, okay, yes. That's all I achieved, Mike. I've done my job for my party. More importantly, I've done my job for my country. Amen. And that's why you would think the Republican Party would want you on stage, because it wouldn't just be that issue. It would probably be two or three others as well, and that, that you would change the game. Right. And that's, that's worthy. Uh, I, wanted, I got a couple questions about the fatherlessness. Let's table that for just a second. Let's wrap up this debate stuff. So, again, moving forward, you and Tim okay. Scott are asking for some changes to not only the qualifying, but also what happens during the debates. Now, I just want to be clear. I despise these debates with a passion. I think they're an embarrassment for our country, quite frankly. I think just the, the format, the whole thing is we should, be, we should be insulted that this is what the process is. But alas, it is. So what are some changes that you are in favor of? Well, in the case of, of Tim Scott, he's asking the RNC, from what I can tell, to change their debate criteria. He wants them to focus more on the polls in the early primary states like New Hampshire, Iowa, Uh, Nevada, South Carolina. I'm not asking that. I'm just asking you to be fair and apply the criteria fairly to me. I met the criteria. The last minute you claimed that a poll, uh, Rasmussen can't be used because it's affiliated with Trump, and Rasmussen puts out a statement and said we're not affiliated with Trump and that elders should be able to use us. What I'm saying is you're being unfair by not properly applying the criteria. From what I can tell, what Tim Scott is saying is change the debate criteria. I'm not asking for that at all. And look, Mike, I don't have no problem with them having a debate criteria. I mean, just because you can fog up a mirror and you want to run for president doesn't mean you demand a spot on, on the debate stage. I get that you have to have some criteria to make sure that the candidates are legitimate. I ran for governor for crying out loud. I got three and a half million votes, more than both of these guys sitting up there ever got. I raised $27 million in seven or eight weeks. On the replacement side, I carried 57 or 58 counties. I got more votes than almost all the other 45 other rival replacement candidates combined. So I'm not somebody who's just, uh, you know, 
just decided all of a sudden I want to run for president and I have no credibility. As you pointed out, I've been talking about this stuff for 30, 40 years, writing a newspaper column since April of 1998, New York Times bestselling list. I've got uh, position papers on all these issues. So as far as I'm concerned, my complaint is if you're going to have criteria, apply them fairly to everybody, including Larry Elder. That's all I'm saying. Raising money stinks, doesn't it, Larry? Isn't that the worst? It's the worst part. It's the worst part of running for office. You know, having your personal life scrutinized, people lying about things that you did or didn't do is one thing. You expect that because the media is hostile to uh, conservatives, especially if you're black, because we undermine the whole narrative of the Democrats push, which is that America remains systemically racist. And they push that narrative because they want black people to be angry and to be voting for things like social justice and equity, whatever the hell that means, instead of things like school and crime uh, and jobs. And so along comes Elder, and I say that racism has never been a major problem in America. I accused Barack Obama, for example, of playing the race card for eight years so that when he entered office, blacks and whites thought race relations would improve. When he left, both blacks and whites thought they got worse because he did eight years of aside of some. He looked like Trayvon. The Cambridge police acted stupidly, embracing Black Lives Matter, having Hal Sharpton in the White House over 70 times, having an AG, Eric Holder, who accused um, people of supporting voter ID of being uh, – perniciously racist, close quote. Uh, he, Obama even said that racism is in America's DNA. He played race card after race card after race card. Along comes Elder, and I expose that, uh, and that's why I am uh, a, a target by the media and by the left. We were talking about Larry Elder, of course. LarryElder.com, is that the website? That's the website. And by the way, I've got a book about what would happen to the rest of the country uh, if it governed the way California, a one-party state, has governed. It's called As Goes California, My Mission to Rescue the Golden State and Save the Nation. As you can see, Mike, my goals are modest. (laughs) (laughs) LarryElder.com. Go and donate, and let's make sure Larry gets on the debate stage uh, next time here. LarryElder.com. Larry, I want to run something by you here that you're talking about, the fatherlessness part. So we talked in the opening hour about this Florida State criminology professor, Eric Stewart. And yes, Eric he, Stewart. <laughs> yes. What, what's so funny, Larry, about Eric? Well, if racism, if, if systemic racism uh, is so clear, so pernicious, so obvious, why in the world do you have to fake data to prove it? It shows you it is BS. It's been BS for a very long period of time. America has never been less racist. Uh, and uh, this whole movement for, for reparations is the extraction of money from people who are never slave owners to be given to people who are never slaver, slaves. It is complete and total nonsense. And by the way, notice that Barack Obama, Mike, his whole career, always opposed reparations. He hasn't said one word about this movement lately. You know why? Because he knows he will be canceled. He'll be kicked to the side as being irrelevant. So now all of a sudden, uh, an issue that he's never uh, been in favor of, he's silent about. Mm. So, so just to catch everyone up, so this professor, Eric Stewart, uh, 20 years of data, all that made up, total lies, all these studies attracted, super influential in the academia world, 8,500 citations from other researchers, um, one of the top criminologists in the country, and it was all, all made up, all lies. And he w- he's the guy who gave the intellectual foundation to a lot of these claims, like um, uh, because of the legacy of lynching, white people perceived mm-hmm. black people as criminals. Just, and I, I don't yeah. know how you would ever study that. Like, I don't know how you would prove such a thing, but whatever data he used, it was all made up to be. So um, we used that, and we talked about a Thomas Sowell argument. I forget which book, maybe Intellectuals and Race, I think. And he talked about how in the late 1800s in the North, blacks and whites were very integrated, very integrated, housing, et cetera, et cetera. 
Then there was the, a black migration from the south up north. And there were a lot of mm-hmm. black people who were like, hey, <laughs> black people from the south because there was this different culture saying, hey, you guys need to act differently. You guys are gonna, you're coming here, you're going to screw everything up. And it was black people who were like black northerners. And they were, had reason to do it. And Thomas Sowell talked about how in Philadelphia of crime, five times as much crime was committed by southerners in, from the, uh, by black people from the south compared to black people from the north. So it's culture is the difference, right. not race. It's culture. Can you speak to that? Well, I sure can. And what bothers me about all of this stuff, Mike, look, look at this. A young black man aged 10 to 43 is 13 times more likely to be murdered than a young white man saying gamble. The number one cause of preventable death for a white male 19 years of age and younger is accidents, like car accidents or drownings or drug overdoses. The number one cause of a 19-year-old uh, preventable death cause of a 19-year-old black man or under is homicide, almost always at the hands of another 19-year-old uh, black male. Uh, blacks account for 60% of the shootings, the robberies, and homicides in America. Unless you're prepared to say that black people are just genetically inclined to commit more crimes, and I assume people are not, if it isn't fatherlessness, please tell me what it is. How in the world can you blame that on systemic racism? We ought to be talking about that, but we're not. We're talking about this kind of nonsense. People like Eric Stewart is pushing this kind of poison and infecting this country, making it up and down, riddled with this narrative, this fake narrative that America remains systemically racist. And as I said earlier, it's not only wrong, it's getting people killed. The George Floyd riots were all about uh, the assumption that what happened to George Floyd had to do with his race, even though the lead prosecutor, a black man, the trial was televised. In his opening statement, he said the police in general were not on trial. In fact, he praised the police. He said the Minneapolis PD in general is not on trial. This individual was on trial for what this individual did, and he never even intimated that what uh, Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd had to do with his race, and Derek Chauvin was never charged with a hate crime. Yet you had the deadliest protests and riots in the history of America, 35 people killed, 2,000 police officers wounded, $2 billion worth of property damage, all because of this fake narrative that whatever happened to George Floyd, however you feel about that, had to do with his race, when it did not. This is what kind of damage people like uh, Eric Stewart, Al Sharpton, Barack Obama, and uh, Joe Biden are doing. I mentioned Joe Biden because he goes to Howard University and at a commencement address says the number one threat to the homeland uh, is white supremacy. Are you mad? Are you nuts? Uh, most homicide is same-race homicide. Most whites who are killed are killed by other whites. Most blacks who are killed are killed by other blacks. But every year, Mike, there are a handful of interracial black-white homicides. Twice as many uh, white people are killed by blacks uh, as the other way around. And if Donald Trump, however, said there was a was the biggest threat to the homeland was black supremacy, you and I would properly denounce him as a race-hustling incendiary, a demagogue. Biden says it and gets a pass. Mm. On the fatherlessness, uh, yesterday... My, my oldest son is seven, about to turn seven. And he got very frustrated at something, very frustrated. And he didn't, you could see it in his body, his whole body. He, he got like tense. Like he didn't know how to, how, to, how to express this frustration he had about something like a toy he wanted. I forget what it was. But, but he, was, he was so angry. It's just pouring inside of him, right? And like, of course, I was like, son, son. And we're like, we hugged. And we talked and we uh, like when, when he gets frustrated, the thing that helps him the most is when he plays with his 10 month old brother. And it's like, hey, let's play with Jamie for a little bit. And then we, we hugged and we talked to that. We figured it out and we, we worked through it. Right. And I was like, oh, like imagine if you if, if Jack, my seven, almost seven, didn't have a dad or any boy doesn't have a dad. That frustration 
builds and builds and builds and builds and it's never channeled properly. It's never thought through. It's never worked through. The heart is never addressed. How could that child not grow up to at least engage in self-destructive behavior, if not criminal behavior? You're guaranteed to live that life. Absolutely. I'm in, absolutely. I'm in California, and we've had a, a spate of these uh, smash-and-grab lootings where mobs of 30, 40 people. Now, they're masked, but many of them who've been arrested have been black, and I suspect the majority of them are young black men doing this. Mike, if I got involved in something like that, I would be more afraid of what my father would say and do to me than what uh, the cops would do to me if I got caught. They're afraid of neither. They don't have fathers in the home. Now, it's not a death sentence. My father grew up without his father. Uh, but if you go to prison, uh, most of these men either have no relationship with their fathers or a poor relationship with their fathers. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's just a fact. You're five times more likely to be poor and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in jail if you grow up without a father in the home. Uh, even Barack Obama once quoted these stats, and when he did it, Jesse Jackson told him that he was, quote, talking down to black people, close quote, so Obama has virtually said nothing a- after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is clear when you don't have a father in the house, uh, your life is not going to be nearly as productive. You're not going to make as much money. You're not going to be as well-educated. You're not, not going to be as likely to be employed as if you have a father in the home. These are just facts. Even okay. think tanks like the Brookings Institution has documented all of this. Let me give if you a double down. poverty. Yeah, let me give you the other So LarryElder.com, of course, LarryElder.com. Get Larry Elder up on the next debate stage. Come on, LarryElder.com, donate, support every way you can. Okay, let me give you a devil's advocate, Larry. So I heard this argument once Okay. that the data about the black father, it's it, it measures something like uh, black kids born out of wedlock. And the argument is that's one thing, but that doesn't mean that the father, the unmarried father, is not present in the, so, so there, right. there's not data about the dad who may, may be living in the home, but unmarried, or the black dad who may be living down the street right. and is still involved right. in the child's life. And for you, Larry, or anyone, me, to, impo- to suggest that only the nuclear family is the way to raise a child is insulting and colonizing on black traditions and, and black ways yes. of living. What do you say? Yeah. It's, it's called the myth of the absent black fathers. And if you Google the myth of the absent black fathers, you're going to have a lot of hits. I respond this way, Mike, and it's real simple. I go back to what I said to you earlier. A young black man aged 10 to 43, 13 times more likely to be murdered. Number one cause of preventable death for a young white man, 19 and under uh, accidents. Number one cause of preventable death for a black male, 19 and under homicide. Blacks account for 60% of robberies, shootings, uh, and murders in America. If it isn't the absence of black fathers, please tell me what your analysis is. Please tell me. And they never have anything. Obviously, I'm talking – that's why I phrase it the way I phrase it. The, uh, the, the lack of a father in the home married to the mother. Whole different ballgame when you have a father in the home married to the mother as opposed to these drive-by dads who pick up their kids, take them to the park, call them on the phone, which is what the people say. And they say that people like Elder are pushing the myth of the absent black father. I'm talking about a father in the home, married to the mother, where you see the old man get up in the morning at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock. He doesn't want to, but he comes home. He does it every single day where you see your father and your mother uh, having conversations, resolving disputes civilly, verbally, without violence, where you see this every single day. It is an in-house, 24-7 
role model that is absent when the father is not in the home married to the mother. That's what I'm talking about. It is particularly acute in the black community versus, say, the Asian-American community, and the results are dramatically different. If it isn't the absence of a father in the home married to the mother, please explain to me what it is. That's great. I remember um, reading a few stories, and, and there's more than just the ones I've read, of right after slavery, so 1865, like right after, the lengths that former male slaves went to travel the country looking for his children. Could, could, nothing could keep him away from finding his children that, that he was uh, ripped away from in, in the throes of slavery. Right. And, and that is what humans are capable of. And you mentioned welfare, and I don't, like that's true, but it, for some reason that I don't, or I don't know if it's, I'm not connecting enough dots or it seems unfathomable or it doesn't make sense that, what do you mean the woman would marry the government? Like I get it intellectually, but I, I, again, I don't know if I'm missing a dot or if there's another element to that. Like where did we go from, from searching the South for my children to, oh, I have like five or six kids or like Nick Cannon who has like 12 kids and like doesn't even know. Yeah. Where they, you know, yeah. what, 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 there's, there's a couple dots there I'm missing. What else is there? Well, well, what, what happened is in the mid 60s, as I said earlier, we launched this so called war on poverty where you had an economic incentive to get money by not having a father in the home married to the mother. The LA Times had a poll several years ago where poor people and non poor people were asked, do poor people on welfare have additional children to get additional money? The majority of the non-poor people, Mike, said no. They probably thought it was condescending, if not insulting. The majority of people who are, however, were poor said yes. Who do you think would be in a better position to know? And we know this has an effect because in the mid-'90s, Bill Clinton signed the uh, welfare reform legislation, and welfare roles declined by almost 50 percent, more than almost anybody assumed. It turned out a bunch of able-bodied and able-minded people got off the couch when, for the first time, we imposed time limits on welfare uh, and so-called family caps, meaning if you had additional children, you didn't get additional money. And all of a sudden, behavior changed. So we know it has created uh, an, a, a perverse incentive uh, that, that, that induces women to marry the government uh, and induces men to abandon the financial and moral responsibility because we saw what happened uh, in the 90s when we, changed, when we changed these incentives. Yeah, it's wild. It's, it's weird. I remember hearing this the other day that criminals are rational. Like they make, they're making rational decisions in ways. And, and you're saying even these women on welfare, like having multiple kids with multiple dads that are not absent is a, almost a rational decision. Like we've, we've set the table in a way where that makes sense to them. Uh, unfortunately, we have. And as I said earlier, uh, polls have shown that when you ask poor people if people on welfare have additional children to get additional money, the majority of people who are on welfare say yes. The majority of not, people not on welfare say no because they just don't know. Ask the people who were there. And you're right about criminals. They may be criminals, but they're rational. Uh, you, you decrease the chance of a bad guy being caught, uh, being convicted, being incarcerated. Crime goes up. They may be criminals, but they're not stupid. Yeah, more than anyone on the debate stage, I want Larry Elder to be there. So go uh, make that happen. What do you need, Larry? What's the, what's the deal? Uh, 3% or better in three different polls and contributions from 50,000 uh, individuals. And please, you can help me by going to LarryYellow.com. And if a pollster calls you yes. and says, who do you want up there on the debate stage, say Elder. Yeah, no, totally. That's it. I, will, I, will, I have zero qualms gaming the game, right? If someone calls me and they're like, who do you support? I, I will say Larry. Like Larry, like Larry Elder. Just say Larry Elder. Get, get Larry, even if Larry's your second, third, whatever choice, 
uh, get Larry Elder on the stage and say Larry Elder, get him at three percent. Is that fair? Is that is that immoral or wrong? I don't think so. Yeah, no, no, not not, not at all. I mean, uh, I, one of the guys that made the debate stage in Milwaukee, Mike. Uh, offered a $20 gift certificate for a $1 donation so that he could get to the 40,000 individual donors. That's I right. never did anything like that. I did it the revolutionary way. I'm asking people to go to my website and donate. Yeah, <laughs> that's, so, that's so right. I forgot about that. Uh, wonderful. LarryElder.com. Larry, let's do it again, sir. I appreciate you. You know how to find me. Thanks a lot, Mike. Appreciate Have a wonderful day. Yep, yep. Thanks for waking up early for us. Uh, LarryElder.com. Um, so he's talking about Doug Burgum. So real quick, because I want to go to uh, Raven here in a second. So Doug Burgum is like a billionaire, I guess. From, he's the North Dakota governor. So he, <laughs> you needed 40,000 donors. So his scheme was, I'm going to pay anyone who donates a dollar to my campaign, which then counts as a donor. If you donate a dollar, I'll give you a $20 gift card. And of course, like that sounds like a scam from an Ethiopian prince, right? But it was real. So he'll give you 20. So people are like, sure, here's a buck. And I get 20 back. So like I'm up 19. So he did that to get to... <laughs> I get to the forty thousand, and that was the scam. And you're like, well, like I, from his, like that is probably a better cost per donor than the traditional way, which is you have a big event, you got to rent a hall, you rent the stage, you got to get the speakers, you bring people in for free, you got some hors d'oeuvres, and then you give a speech, and then they leave, and you hey on your way out, maybe give a couple of the bucks. Like that whole thing probably costs more than nineteen dollars per donor. So Doug Burgum just like went right to the game. He's like, hey, just give me a buck. I'll give you 20 back. That's unbelievable. And he was allowed on stage, but Larry Elder didn't. Come on, give me a break. LarryElder.com. I'm American made. I got American parts. Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. Are we going to touch the Russell Brand story? Uh, you may be thinking, I don't care about the Russell Brand story. There are some relevant themes here. First of all, if you have any sons, there is an important lesson here for your boys. Because someone can come out of nowhere from 20 years ago and say that, that when, when we were dating and we had a sexual encounter, it was, it was I call it rape. So there's, there's some lessons there. I think we should do it. It's some it's some uh, touchy ground, but we'll give it a go. Tomorrow, we'll give the latest on Russell Brand. And, and even if you don't like Russell Brand, what this has to do with you and why it matters and where we're going in our country and our culture, potentially dangerous place. Do that tomorrow. Thanks later. Spread the word.